Hello, and welcome to the Strategica podcast from the Hoover Institution, analyzing the intersection of military history and contemporary national security concerns. You can find us online at hoover.org forward slash Strategica. I'm your host, Troy Sinek, and today we'll be examining the topic of the most recent issue of Strategica, what additional future steps should the United States and Europe take, if any at all, to counter Russian ambitions? And we are joined today by the author of the historical background in this issue, Victor Davis Hanson, the Martin and Ely Anderson Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution, as well as, of course, the chairman of the Military History and Contemporary Conflict Working Group that produces Strategica. Victor, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. So let me start, as you do in your piece, with the, the 2005 speech by Vladimir Putin that has sort of been rediscovered in the West in the wake of what's happened in Ukraine. And he said in that speech, quoting him here, above all, we should acknowledge that the collapse of the Soviet Union was a major geopolitical disaster of the century. Now, that's a line that's gotten a lot of attention. But you say in your piece we should be paying more attention to what he said immediately thereafter. Explain that. Yes. Well, he wasn't talking about necessarily uh, the demise of communism, but rather the – the tragedy that there are people who speak Russian who are not within the what the subsequent Russian Federation. In other words, there's a great tragedy that a the Soviet Union did not transmogrify into a right-wing Russian nationalist orthodox uh, duplicate, and the result of that b is that it has logical claims on particular territories, Ossetia, Crimea, by extension, eastern Ukraine, probably even parts of Estonia or Latvia, where there's large Russian speakers. And that's what I think he was trying to hint to us. And it makes sense of what he's trying to do. So talking about what he's trying to do, we've seen what's happened in Ukraine. We know that there are potential threats further away from Russia's borders. There's an argument in the West it may be unfair to call it deterministic, but it kind of lists in that direction. It's at least materialistic that that runs roughly as follows. Look, you don't need to worry about this aggression long term because it's essentially self-limiting. Russia doesn't have the economic resources. It doesn't have the military resources to be meaningfully expansionist outside of a fairly small orbit. Do you buy that? Uh, ostensibly, I do, but – Historically, that makes no sense because let's take one, the most obvious example. In 1938, Hitler had no business uh, demanding the dissolution of Czechoslovakia because the combined military power of France, the Western democracies, uh, even Belgium and Holland included in that, Britain, Poland, and Czechoslovakia vastly outweighed Hitler's three million man army. I mean, they had a Altogether, about four and a half million, and yet uh, Hitler was able to bulldoze his way not just from the Saarland and the Rhineland and the Anschluss, but into Czechoslovakia and then subsequently into Poland. And, and the reason why is that psychologically he disarmed his uh, opponents. And I think the same way is true of Putin. So it really doesn't matter that the West, Europe. The United States have a vastly greater uh, military deterrent than does Putin because he's much more willing to use what he has than what we are willing to use. 
and he's operating in his neighborhood, not ours or not Western Europe's. So it just depends on what we are willing to put up with. If we feel that Crimea and Ossetia and Eastern Ukraine do belong to the new Russian Federation by force of arms and maybe parts of the Baltic states, um, then he's going to succeed in getting them and there's not much we can do about it. And then we can say, well, that's limited. But at some point, um, I think he will find that all the areas with 30 to 40 percent of Russian speakers belong inside some an entity called Russia, uh, especially the ones that are not Islamic. Victor, there's a, a provocative assertion in your piece. It sort of leaps off the page when you read it, talking about the possibility that Putin will go further. You write, I'm quoting you here, for Putin, the fact that the Baltic states are NATO members is an enticement, not a deterrent. What do you mean by that? Well, in theory, if he were to go into his first NATO country, any of those three, these would be the first three countries uh, that he's targeted that are NATO members, and we feel that he wouldn't do that because that would evoke Article 5, which means calls all NATO countries to come individually and collectively to the support of the invaded country. And I think he'll do that because he understands quite clearly that we would not do that, or at least large numbers of NATO countries would not lend any aid. In fact, we have countries like Greece, who's a NATO member, where Vladimir Putin's the most popular foreign national leader inside Greece today, and he's much more popular than we are, or especially Germany. So I think that if he were to go into, let's say, Estonia, there would be a sizable number of countries that would either support him or not care, and there would be a sizable number of countries that wouldn't do anything. And whether the United States would actually uh, use military force to stop him or to eject him, I think is debatable. And I think that would be the de facto end of NATO, and I think he would welcome that. Let's talk about the root causes of that. Why, why doesn't the United States care enough to stop Putin or to put a meaningful break on him? And why doesn't Europe? And, and are those two separate answers? They're kind of two separate answers, but they're interconnected in the sense that Europe is down on a pan-European ratio of about, oh, I don't know, 1% they spend of GDP on defense, which is not enough to have a muscular deterrent. And then second of all, they've always assumed that we're going to make up that slack psychologically, physically, materially, and we're not going to anymore. Why aren't we? Partly uh, Barack Obama understands there's exhaustion after Afghanistan, Iraq, Libya, etc. And that military, the use of military force, he's made the argument, does not help us very often, even his own. And then two, He's created a landscape in which every dollar that's spent on defense in general is defined as shorting food stamps or entitlements. So we're in this sort of Orwellian situation where, unlike the situation in 1994, when we raised taxes and slashed defense, we had a surplus. We've slashed defense below 4% GDP. We raised taxes, at least on the upper brackets, up to the Clinton levels, and yet we're still running $600, $600 billion deficits per annum. And that shows you that, uh, that he's, cre he's created the, a, a new field. He's moved the parameters, the sidelines, and it, it's basically that all defense and foreign obligations are at the expense of needy Americans. And so there's no public support for confronting or deterring uh, Putin, under Obama at least. You talk in your piece about the fact that we sometimes overlook the importance of personality in international conflicts, how different leaders regard and relate to each other. 
And you sort of suggest that Vladimir Putin isn't just undeterred by President Obama, but there's also a sort of active contempt there. Explain that. Well, Putin uh, feels that Obama is weak and that he's sanctimonious and that he lectures Russia and without historical knowledge of Russia's key role in world affairs and more importantly that people in Russia do what they must to survive and that takes daring and cunning and audacity and that prior American presidents understood that but when Obama makes fun of him and I, I mean that literally when he says he's like a kid in high school cutting up in the back of the class or he's into a macho shtick or this is all for domestic that may be true but when you combine that with a sense of paralysis, whether it's in, you know, with China and the Sea of Japan aggression, or it's in the Middle East, or <laughs> deadlines, red lines, step over lines that are not enforced, then Putin develops a sense of contempt that he he's allowed. He, he talks, you know, loudly with a small stick, and that contempt then leads for more contempt and more occasions to humiliate Obama, which he does. The second thing is that. He, whether it's fair or not, or accurate or not, or just absurd or not, he has created his image in the West of an orthodox religious Christian who is trying to withhold Western values. And he doesn't include in there those free speech or expression, but rather traditional piety, the family, um, he's against radical abortion, gay rights, radical feminism, uh, political correctness. And that resonates uh, in the Balkans, uh, it resonates in Greece, it resonates in Armenia, it resonates in any orthodox country have flocked to that banner. It resonates in parts of Western Europe and even parts of the United States. So whether Obama knows it or not, Putin has uh, started to understand that he can characterize their differences as America is sort of a postmodern, decadent cultural mess and he is a pre-modern old 19th century absolutist stands for traditional western values and we've kind of fallen into that and he's gaining enormous uh, propaganda points there was there was a piece in the new republic about a month or so ago that the name of the author eludes me now but it, it argued essentially that the point of arming the ukrainians to resist putin was not because they could militarily defeat the Russians, but because they could make the cost of continuing the battle prohibitively high for Putin, especially as regards public opinion back in Russia. Um, is that persuasive to you, or should we expect... I think, that Go ahead. Be, I think that had people in Georgia and the Crimea and eastern Ukraine been armed, um, they wouldn't have won, but Putin would have been looking at a series of offensives that were bogged down or that people would not be so readily uh, eager to join him. And what do I mean by that? It would mean that right now in Estonia, the Russian-speaking population would not feel that they wanted to rise up because there was going to be this big wave of Russian paramilitary people that would swarm in and help them. In other words, they feel it would be sort of a quagmire. And then the public would sort of feel about middle, military action the way we do about Afghanistan, Iraq, and Libya, at least the that would be the idea of it, and I think it might work. I think to, the way to look at these is not whether they're right or wrong, which obviously they are, or whether they're you know bold or, or timid, is whether they succeed or not, because most people have no ideology. When they see Putin succeeding at no cost, then people want to join him. And when he is 
not succeeding at no cost. He's either bogged down or he only succeeds after suffering and incurring a lot of casualties. And people will not want to join him. Same thing is true of ISIS or Iran. So we have these ideas that everything's ideological, everything's political, and that success or failure is depending on, you know, a good propaganda campaign or hearts and minds or outreach. I don't think that matters historically, at least, as much as the perception of winning at little cost versus losing at a lot of cost. So final question, let's assume that the Western response stays roughly where it's been thus far, within one standard deviation anyway. You had a story just yesterday that the U.S. is sending more aid to Ukraine, but it's, it's Humvees, it's drones, it's radios, it's medical supplies. What it's not is the lethal arms that they want. If that's representative of the approach we're going to take, what does the world look like for Russia and the countries and its crosshairs a little less than two years from now when Barack Obama leaves office? Well, I think there's a good chance that in the last year of Barack Obama's tenure, that would be next year, that he will do something in the Baltic states because he's going to understand that who's ever president is going to react to this because it's not sustainable, this American foreign policy. And it would be if he had just included in that Humvee shipment some anti-tank or anti-aircraft missiles where somebody with a, a very poorly funded military would get parity on the battlefield against somebody that has you know, sophisticated weapons, it would have, been, it would have really meant something because they could stop Russian tanks or they could stop strafing, but uh, because he didn't do that, and it becomes almost a symbol of our weakness. So I, I think he's going to act uh, maybe at the end of this year or next year and do it one more time or two more times. His model is Hitler, and he thinks that Hitler had the right idea, but he went too far by going into Poland. He knows there's some magical country boundary um, that he can't go into because it'll hum so humiliate the West that they'll have to react, but he thinks... He's, he's not got there yet, so he's gotten there yet. So he thinks that maybe he can go to, the, to Estonia, and at that point he can digest what he has for a couple of years. All right. Our guest has been Victor Davis Hansen, Martin and Neely Anderson, Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution and Chairman of Hoover's Military History and Contemporary Conflict Working Group. You can read his essay and those by other members of the group by visiting us online at hoover.org forward slash strategica. That's S-T-R-A-T-E. G-I-K-A. Victor, thank you for being with us. Thank you, guys. For the Hoover Institution, I'm Troy Sinek. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more information about our work, please visit hoover.org.